welcome um, to the latest in the uh, Hoover uh, Security by the Book uh, events, which you know we call at Lawfare the Hoover Book Soirees, sort of dual named, dual hatted events, um, in which, for those of you who haven't been to one before, we uh, have a uh, national security oriented book author for a conversation amidst uh, drinks and food uh, and, and conversation. Uh, we do podcast these events uh, on the Lawfare podcast. And as a result of that, we don't take questions from the audience. Uh, you are invited after the conversation to uh, ask your questions directly to the author, who will hang around to answer questions and sign books and uh, make merry. Um, so our author, as you know, this week, uh, this month, is Tim Marr of Carnegie, who has written a book, an extremely timely book, uh, which you can't say that very often, given the length of, of time it takes to produce uh, a, a book. Um, but uh, cyber mercenaries are on the front of all of our minds, whether we kind of know it or not. Um, if you just think about the last month of news, how much of it actually involves uh, activity that is reasonably encompassed within the title of this book, uh, it's not a small amount. Uh, and I, I suspect we don't go two days without a story related to this subject being you know, on the front page of every newspaper in the country. Uh, so let's get into it. Tim, welcome. Thank you, Bank. What's a cyber mercenary, and what, how is it different in your conception, or the same in your conception as what you call proxies? So a cyber mercenary, and the way I describe it in the book, is essentially a hacker who is not part of a state's military or a state's intelligence agency. Um, I'd initially proposed cyber proxies as the title of the book. Uh, the marketing department of the publisher thought cyber mercenaries is sexier. Funny that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I actually use uh, the broader concept of proxies because mercenaries usually means you get hired for money and you're providing a service. Uh, and in many instances, we actually have hackers who uh, are also politically motivated and might do certain things uh, without uh, receiving money in return. OK, so let's, let's talk about what is and is not incorporated within the term, because it'll help set up the rest of the conversation. You're not talking about basic cybercrime here. You're not talking about general cybersecurity problems. You're not talking about state action itself, as, for example, when the US goes after Stuxnet or when the Russian government hacks the DNC. You're talking only about situations in which there is some private intermediary actor functioning on behalf of the government, either with the government's direction or not. That's exactly right. And part of the reason why I chose this narrow field um, is because when I started writing this book, we were in the midst of the cyber war debate, which I found to be very state-centric and looking only at state institutions. And I found that in conversations with the hacker community, but also um, the law enforcement community, and 
also in the national security community, that it's actually a much more complex picture and that how states are projecting power often relies on leveraging capabilities that are not part of the state. And these proxy relationships is what I was really intrigued by. Okay, so just to put meat on those bones, the book actually, for those of you who haven't cracked it yet, the preface of the book actually opens with you hanging out in, in Kiev with you know, a cyber mercenary. Um, uh, and um, I want like four, three or four examples of this that will you know, put meat on, these on the bones and sort of take it out of the realm of the theoretical and into the realm of the tangible and in the news. So what are some examples uh, that everybody's going to be familiar with of cyber mercenaries in action in, in the sense that you mean them in the book? Yeah, so I traveled to Ukraine because I was very interested in, in the role of Russia, and uh, I didn't want to travel to Russia directly for the book, so I thought I'd travel to Ukraine, which is close enough, and given the conflict, I uh, was interested in how some of the criminal actors in the region might have become politicized. I think the best example that probably uh, you in the audience can relate to uh, is the example of the Yahoo data breach. The data breach um, that involved Yahoo remains the largest data breach to date. Uh, three billion email accounts were hacked. So I'm sorry to say if you've had a Yahoo email account in the past, um, it probably involves your account. And um, this operation, as we know, based on an indictment that the US government unsealed, involved two Russian intelligence officers uh, who were working for the FSB, um, a 22-year-old Canadian uh, who was living in Canada, and a, a late 30s cyber criminal um, who, by the name of Belan, who was wanted for cyber crime by US law enforcement agencies, was briefly arrested in a European country, had managed to escape back to Russia before being uh, extradited to the United States, and then within six months of being back in Russia, became part of this operation according to the indictment and targeted Yahoo working with these two Russian intelligence officers. We know that the cyber criminal, while targeting Yahoo on behalf of the two Russian intelligence officers, was allowed to make money on the side. So this is, while he's a cyber criminal, he was having this connection to the Russian intelligence service. And we essentially can think of him as a modern day privateer because he was also allowed to make money on the side through this uh, cyber crime activity. The 22-year-old Canadian enters the picture because he was then paid on a commission basis to gain access to accounts that weren't Yahoo accounts, but of people who had a Yahoo, who, Yahoo account and who had already been hacked. So he was essentially given names of specific people who had a Yahoo account, but where they knew these people also had other email accounts. And then this Canadian was paid a little bit of money for each account that he was able to hack in addition to this original Yahoo account. So if you think about it, one, it's a transnational network because the Canadian wasn't based in Russia or Eastern Europe. He was in Canada. He was recruited to be part of this operation. And you had this criminal who was recruited to engage in this Yahoo data breach. Now, it's not only that these 3 million email accounts had been hacked but it actually had a direct impact on the deal that was struck between Verizon and Yahoo at the time. 
because they were in negotiations for Verizon essentially uh, uh, buying Yahoo. And they had concluded a deal, and then the data breach became public. And Verizon went back to Yahoo and said, we want $300 million taken off what we had negotiated in terms of price because of the impact that this data breach is going to have. So we are talking about few, f these four individuals who are mentioned in the indictment whose action led to a $300 million economic impact because they had this massive data breach uh, of, th of 3 million uh, email accounts. So that's one example of this type of proxy relationship where in the last two or three years, we've gotten a much clearer picture of what these relationships look like. And to your, to your question about Ukraine, I traveled to Ukraine because I was fascinated to, by these volunteer groups that had sprung up in Ukraine. So after the troops have moved in, in in the east, the people in Ukraine realized that the Ukrainian government was in no position to really have the capability to respond to this aggression. So you had volunteer groups that were helping with all sorts of activities in response to this uh, national crisis. And I was curious whether that also uh, extended into the cybersecurity realm and whether you had some of the hackers that we know have been very active in the region uh, might have come to help the Ukraine government. And one group that had made headlines repeatedly was the group called the Ukrainian Cyber Force, um, whose self-declared commander, U Eugene Dokukin, said that he had several hundred followers and that his mission was to disrupt the, uh, the rebel activity in the East. There were, at the time I traveled to Ukraine, maybe two or three media articles who talked about him. And uh, I reached out to him through Facebook. He has a Facebook page for the Ukrainian cyber forces and told him I was going to write the book and whether he would be willing to meet with me. Uh, and to my surprise, he responded. Um, the reason why I felt comfortable doing that was because in the first year of the book research, I did some preliminary research. I met with one uh, official at Europol, who uh, one of the smartest people I've met uh, throughout this entire research. And he's like, you know what? You should look at some of the hacker forums. And you should even try to reach out to some of the people that might be proxies. Uh, just be out upfront about what you're trying to do. Because uh, if not, they will find out. Uh, and maybe some of them will be willing to talk to you. So it was thanks to the advice he gave me um, that I essentially got in touch with, with Dokukin and then met him in Kiev and spent 45 minutes uh, learning from him how he set up this, this group um, and the activities he was undertaking, which at the end of the day turned out to be uh, not as sophisticated as I think he was portraying himself to be um, and was more or less debunking this myth that you had this large group of hacktivists, of sophisticated hackers, but that it was actually more or less Facebook volunteers who were unpaid and for political reasons uh, had joined his cause. WikiLeaks, is it a proxy? Or, I mean, it, it has a vision of itself, or at least it conveys a vision of itself as a independent, uh, quasi-journalistic, quasi-hacking enterprise, right? Uh, that publishes stuff that it gets. U.S. intelligence talks about it as a, uh, a, 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 an intelligence cutout, sort of front for a foreign entity. In your framework, how should we understand it? So I limit my discussion actually to actors that are involved in hacking, in gaining unauthorized access to a system or conducting a, a 
distributed denial of service attack, so uh, flooding a system so it can no longer process uh, the request. I don't include and discuss uh, other actors who might be used for political purposes, uh, such as WikiLeaks, where they get the information potentially from hackers as well, uh, and then put them out in the wild. Right, but I mean, the hackers exist in an ecosystem, and part of the ecosystem is how the information gets exploited, right? And so if you take, you know, the 2016 election cycle as an example, right, according to the U.S. government, uh, there is a set of operations conducted against U.S. targets by Russian government actors. Uh, and that information finds its way directly or indirectly to WikiLeaks, which then publishes it, as well as to uh, DC Leaks, the Guccifer II uh, operation. Uh, and so I think thinking about how the information dispersal systems interact right, with, with, the, with the hacking operations is a kind of inherently interesting piece of the puzzle. So where, where does it fit in? I, I fully agree with that, and, and um, the, partly by just focusing on actors who hacked, you very clearly identify that a, a law has been violated, because if you hack a system, you've broken criminal uh, law, and therefore you can be arrested. WikiLeaks is a much more complicated story, because the publication of information doesn't really violate a law, so it's a, a much harder, from a policy perspective, problem to deal with in terms of how we address it. To your, to your point, I think what, what I also discuss in the book is that a lot of countries think about this space very differently than we've thought about this until at least 2016, in that they look at this space much more holistically. They don't just isolate hackers and cyber operations in one silo, but they look at also the information domain much more broadly and how they can combine hacking with the deliberate leaking of information and politically timed release of, of data which makes it so much more difficult for us because our political system is obviously designed very differently and we cherish free speech and content, which makes our ability to effectively respond to it a lot more complicated. So actually that brings me to very neatly to the next question I was going to ask, which is, you know, you have this section uh, relatively early in the book where you, I think, rightly focus on the fact that uh, the, the cybersecurity problems that different countries perceive are not parallel to one another, and that what an offensive operation is conducted by a state or a proxy partly depends on what it is you're trying to protect, and that there are, there's a U.S. vision of, of cybersecurity, there's a Russian vision of cybersecurity, there's a Chinese vision of cybersecurity, you even have a little discussion of the Iranian view of cybersecurity, which I, was news to me. Um, so give us a sense of the lay of that land when, when we talk about what proxies or non-proxies are doing that offend cybersecurity objectives of different countries. We're not always talking about the same thing. What, what, what's the landscape of you know, perceived cybersecurity harms? Yeah, I think one of the most as fascinating aspects that I came across is that some of the very same actors that are targeting 
government systems in the U.S. and in Europe or steal data uh, from companies are also targeting dissidents in those countries or dissidents abroad. Um, because back to this fact that a lot of countries think about this more holistically, for a lot of these countries, regime stability is the most important priority governing how the government thinks about the space and how they're using these actors. So regime stability includes the control of information. It includes that they will try to use these hackers to uh, focus on dissidents and to gain access to their systems, to spy on them, to make sure that dissidents might not pose a threat to the regime. Um, and it also focuses on their external engagement, making sure that uh, other governments won't try to meddle in their internal affairs. So if we look at these different countries, and you mentioned Russia, Iran, and China, which I looked at uh, in different components, uh, what stuck out is that they have different models for how they engage with some of these actors and that in the Chinese case it's also evolved significantly. Um, so in, in, in Russia, as we know now, post the election, you didn't just have the hacking operation, you had the trolls that were the, the internet research agency that was placing the information. But actually some of the first instances of how they were using offensive cyber capabilities occurred in the Chechen conflict where they were targeting Chechens uh, th with hacking tools uh, in the domestic context long before they were actually projecting it uh, abroad. Uh, in Iran, in a very similar scenario, um, the Iranian government uses the term cyber war in a much broader context as we think of cyber war. They use the term cyber war not about and not focusing on critical infrastructure protection as we usually think about it. The electrical grid might go down. They use the term cyber war in the context of social media accounts and that they have people that are criticizing the, uh, the, the regime in Tehran uh, and they want to shut them down. So um, the, view, the way they view the world and the, the way they view the threats to their regime is also directly informing how they're actually using their cyber capabilities. Okay, so the body, the second third of the book, is a series of case studies uh, of different countries, but they're kind of graded by different degree of control that the country exercises over the proxy. Uh, so sort of how tight the leash is uh, and how easy, therefore, is to impute the activity of the, act the, the proxy actor to the state itself. So let's just go through those in the order that you do in the book. You start out with the US where the proxies are on what you describe as a very tight leash. So talk about the US use of proxies and what it looks like. Yeah. So. Um, if, if we think about this leash, we have an interest to make sure that these types of proxies are on a very tight leash. Because, again, hackers are used in a broader geopolitical context. So the way a state is using a hacker is part of the broader strategic game. And the concern is that if a state is using its proxies and has a very loose leash, the proxy might be, taking, might be doing things that the government actually doesn't want, and then there is a risk of accidents and escalation, and all of a sudden you find yourself in a crisis that nobody intended because they didn't keep tight control of who they were actually uh, hiring to do their bidding. The US does rely on hackers that are not part of the government. 
the security, the, the give, private. Give us some examples of that. So Northrop Grumman, some of the defense contractors that over the last 20 years have expanded their business to include information security and cybersecurity. Fort Meade, Cyber Command, they are hiring contractors on a regular basis. These are multi-million dollar contracts because, frankly, it's much harder for the government to pay enough to these hackers and to be attractive enough to have these resources and contractors fill part, part of that wo void. What makes the U.S. different from the other countries that I discuss is these contractors sit next to the people in uniform, sit next to the intelligence officers in Langley and in Fort Meade. So in the U.S. context, you have a very tight control. The contract clearly says if you're working for the CIA or the NSA, you may not work from home uh, because we want to make sure that we know exactly what you're doing and it's very tightly controlled, what kind of actions we delegate and outsource to contractors. And there is a clear line where we say this has to be carried out by a member of the government of the state. Um, so part of that is informed by if we make a decision to um, if, if, by the way, I should clarify, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the U.S. government. If the U.S. government makes a decision to launch an offensive cyber operations, it wants to control the effect and the escalatory dynamic involved with that. If we look, but you only wanted me to talk about the U.S., so I'm going to stop here. Yeah, no, let's, <laughs> let's stick with the U.S., because I want to push you on whether this even counts as a proxy. Good point. Yeah. So when the government builds a building, let's say the Pentagon, um, I don't believe, I, I haven't looked at the history of the construction of the Pentagon, but <laughs> my suspicion is it was not built by a uniformed military physically, you know, pouring the concrete and all, all the girders and whatnot. Uh, hires construction contractors. We don't think of that as a proxy. We think of that as the U.S. government doing something, right? It built the Pentagon. So when the action is clearly authorized by the government, conducted by the government, uh, and it just happens to be that the mode of doing it is to hire a contractor. Is that really a proxy action? There's no deniability that flows to it. There's no sense in which you would say that's not US government action. So of what significance is it that the employer of the entity is a, is a government contractor rather than, we don't say an F-16 is not a US government jet because it was built by a private company. So in, why is it significant that these are proxy actors? I agree with you, um, but let me tell you why I decided to include the case study and what I was trying to do with it as part of the book. Um, first, Sometimes foreign governments will say that these contractors, or even Google or Facebook, are proxies of the U.S. government, and that there is actually no distinction between the government and the private sector in the U.S., um, and that they view them the same way. Um, so that's, th through the foreign lens, sometimes they are viewed as proxies in the same lens, and they use that as an argument to legitimize their own use of proxies that might be on a loose leash. The second, and this gets ties to the second point, ideally from a policy perspective, we want other states to tighten their leash and to mirror how Western governments use actors that are not part of the state. We want them to tighten the leash to reduce the potential for escalation, to reduce the risk of accidental escalation uh, because we want to make sure that if 
another country does a certain action, that it's actually the government that made that decision and it's not some uh, rogue actor. So by including this case study and stretching the concept of proxy to include these contractors, I was essentially trying to portray what I consider to be the ideal type scenario of most governments in this space don't have enough cyber capabilities in-house and will be relying on actors that are not part of the state. If they do so, they should keep them on very tight control, similar to how the US and other, most other Western governments are engaging with their contractors. So that's why I decided to include contractors and to include the US as a case study um, because I think it helps further this argument vis-a-vis -vis these other governments of why we want them to tighten the leash uh, rather than adopting the more narrowly defined definition of proxies that often has a negative connotation. When you use proxy, it has this kind of like dirty association with it that you're doing something that you ought, ought not to do. But I think it's important to acknowledge that pretty much all states are using hackers that are not part of the military intelligence agencies. But what the difference is, some have much tighter control, and that's what we want other states to get to as well. OK, so second category, as you move away from US vision of tight control, you get to Syria and Iran, um, which was not, I have to say, not what I was expecting. I thought you would you know, get to like Japan and South Korea or you know, <laughs> like you know, Western Europe or something. No. For straight from the U.S. to Syria. Um, and you, you describe that as a looser leash. Uh, I forget the exact language that you use. So describe what Bashar Assad's uh, and Khamenei's proxies look like, how they're similar to U.S. proxies, and how they're different. So the Syrian case is, that, is, is particularly interesting because we see an evolution also um, as the conflict progresses. At the outset of the conflict, you have a hacktivist group, the Syrian Electronic Army, that was actually quite active. Uh, they made headlines in 2013 because they were able to hack the Twitter account of the Associated Press. When I say hack, it was actually not that difficult because they didn't use uh, two-factor authentication and they were able to guess the password and then gain access to their Twitter account. And they placed a tweet where the Associated Press said the White House had been attacked the president is injured and essentially planted fake news. Um, the Dow, I think it was the Dow, that temporarily dropped by 300 points. It, wasn't, took, it took about two hours for it to go back up. Um, but it still had, had an impact. And you had this hacktivist group that was fairly active at the outset of the conflict. And then they disappeared three or four years later. And I think part of the reason is because the country was just uh, descending into chaos. And some of the people who might have been involved had other problems to deal with than keeping their Twitter account and their hacking activity up to date. Um, but we know based on, um, on an indictment that, again, you had two Syrian nationals who were involved in this specific operation with regard to the Associated Press. Um, but they were also working with an individual in Germany who, through Facebook, had made contact with this group and was willing to support them uh, through, uh, uh, by essentially providing uh, funding. And this individual ended up being arrested and extradited to the United States. So in this case, the Syrian Electronic Army and some of the hacktivists that we know, hacktivists are politically driven hackers. Um, so it's a combination of a hacker and, and activist. Um, and in this case, the, the group that has been a hub for a lot of the 
security researchers and hackers in Syria is an institution that we know President uh, uh, Bashar al-Assad was tied to from the 1990s. Uh, so there's, there's signs that there was a link to it. We don't know how strong that link is, but it's clear that it's not, these guys aren't sitting right next to the Syrian military officials and the intelligence community. Iran, it, we know more about Iran, and we know more about some of the relationships between the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and some of the hackers that aren't part of the government but that have been supporting the government. Um, so in this case, uh, to give you another example, back in 2012 and 2013, you had hackers who were targeting U.S. banks and they were uh, launching massive cyber attacks against these banks to the extent that the banks approached the White House and said, we need help, we don't have enough capacity to defend ourselves, please step in. And I think the White House was initially reluctant because they were saying, you're banks, you have a lot of money, uh, you have other ways to defend yourself, um, the government ought to focus on more se serious threats. The Iranians who were held responsible for this or were accused to be responsible for this in a, in a U.S. indictment involved 70 Iranians, four of whom are in their mid-20s, who uh, were part of a company and joined forces with three other Iranians, one of whom had links to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. And these 20-year-olds, up until six months prior to being part of this operation, were publicly boasting about being able to take down a website and replacing the website with a logo that they had planted on the website. That's something that not very sophisticated hackers do to take credit for how weak a website security might be. And they then plant their logo or their name to then take a snapshot and a photo of it essentially to then post it somewhere on the internet and take credit for the actions they've taken. They did this up until six months prior to joining this operation that had some of the world's largest financial institutions go to the White House and said that they needed help because they didn't have enough resources to cope with this. And according to the New York Times, it was these four mid-20-year-olds who really helped these other three Iranians to escalate this attack to reach the scale. And it mirrors what we've seen in Iran for decades now. That if we go back to the 70s, when the embassy was taken over, you had this mob of politically active students who were ultimately initially responsible for taking over the U.S. Embassy because it was clearly something that was indirectly endorsed by the regime and it wasn't until two days later that the regime endorsed it and actually took credit for it where I think we are now seeing the Iranian regime similarly leveraging the capabilities of students at the technical universities to project cyber power against the U.S. and other targets uh, in a very deliberate way. But again, it's completely different from this model of a contractor where you have people sitting next to each other, but it's a much looser framework where I, I call it orchestration. It's an academic book, so uh, some of the terms are a lot more technical uh, um, than, than looser leash. Um, and I think it shows this how different states have very different models for how they think about leveraging these actors, which in this case provides Tehran with plausible deniability as well. So looser still in your account is Russia, which is, again, I found a little bit surprising because we think of you know, Vladimir Putin as the, the mastermind, right, who's, who's you know, puppeteering all these hacks. 
And in your account, the Russian state's direction is looser than the Syrian or, or, or Iranian. So what is the relationship? You know, Putin goes on television and talks rhapsodically about the hackers who just will hack like a, like a, uh, like a pianist will play the piano, you know. Um, there's clearly a relationship there, but it's, uh, it's a complicated one. So what, what does it look like? So I should clarify that when I say that it's, it's this environment of, on a loose leash, I focus on states as a systemic model. So I think there, especially in the context of the election interference, there are specific operations where the Kremlin will have very, very tight control over the hackers, where there are specific instructions that are given and the control is as tight as you might imagine with, with contractors here. Um, what I tried to do in the book was describe general models for how states uh, engage with hackers um, that are not part of the military or the intelligence agency. And what, I th what we've seen in Russia and in Eastern Europe is you ha the Russian government creating a, an environment where if you're a criminal hacker, you're, the government will turn a blind eye as long as you target companies or a government agency that is not in Russia. So as long as you don't target Mother Russia, but you're stealing money from a, Euro a company in Europe or a company in the US, you don't necessarily have to worry about Russian law enforcement agencies. If you're a hacker and you haven't gotten the memo about not targeting Mother Russia and you might be stealing money from a Russian company, there's, a lot, uh, there's evidence that the Russian government is actually quite effective to identify who the hackers are and to then arrest them. So creating this environment where you allow hackers... That's a real incentive structure. Exactly. And then if you need them, as I just alluded to in terms of like if there's an actual operation where you have direct control, you know who to, to, on whose doors to knock and to ask them for help. To the extent that when I went to Kiev, um, some of the people I met with told me that um, some of the hackers in the region were moving to Southeast Asia, to like Thailand and Vietnam, because they wanted to get away from the Russian government and not have to worry about getting a, a knock on the door at one point uh, and being recruited for an activity of the Russian government. Now, that's an anecdote that's not, I can't independently verify it. I didn't travel to Thailand and Vietnam, although I would have liked to. Um, but I think that's, it tells you an interesting story about the environment that exists in the region and how, again, the model for how the Russian government operates and uses these, these hackers is completely different from how we are thinking about it and creates all sorts of problems because the same criminal that might have one, one day be working for the government, the next day might not be working for the government and then hacks you and you don't actually know whether it's on behalf of the government or not. So how you react to it hopefully differs whether it's a criminal or political action. So it must also have the effect, because it is among other things an economic incentive structure, of creating a much larger pool to work with, right? So if you're Bashar Assad, um, you have to work with the group of people who you can gather and direct, right? But if you're Vladimir Putin and you basically say, we're going to create a market in cybercrime, go to town, have fun, um, just as long as you don't target Russian entities, and when we tap you on the shoulder and say, we need your help with something, you know, please be available. 
that creates a real regulatory environment that has a kind of certainty, right? You know, you know what you can do, you know what you can't do. It must be quite fruitful in producing capable trainees and bodies. Yes and no. Um, what I found interesting, and I worked four years on this book and traveled to ten different countries, including uh, Asia and, and Europe and the Middle East, was when I asked people how many hackers they thought existed around the world that, were very, that had very sophisticated capabilities, people would give me numbers in the hundreds or low thousands. They weren't talking about tens of thousands of hackers that are out there. Um, so when it comes to actually the most sophisticated hackers, we are talking about a fairly finite number of hackers. Um, and then the question becomes whether they might actually be recruited to actually work directly for the government rather than working outside, right? Or whether they work for a company because they make a lot more money. Um, what I find worrisome in terms of future trends is initially I was thinking, oh, if we're only talking about a couple of hundred hackers, then a strategy that tries to focus on arresting them or making sure that they aren't conducting crime but work for a company, that could actually work because you can absorb then this labor, that this capability that exists if it's a fairly finite number of, of people. What in the last few years has changed, I think, is that we've seen several high-profile leaks of very sophisticated tools that were clearly not developed by uh, unsophisticated hackers but by, by state entities that weren't able to keep them locked up. Um, and when these become available in the public domain uh, or in underground fora, and unsophisticated hackers gain access to these tools, they don't need to have had the knowledge to know how to write them, but they might be able to use them even though they didn't have the expertise to write them, which turns all of a sudden a few hundred very sophisticated hackers into a much broader pool of unsophisticated hackers who might be using these tools and turn them into a much more powerful kind of threat. So one last uh, case study that I thought was in some ways the most interesting uh, because it's the most fluid is China, where you know, it sort of starts in one department and ends up in another department. So tell the China story. So I chose China as a case study for describing change over time. When I started the book, I was actually intrigued by the question whether we saw new alliances emerge of because hacking is so cheap that a country in the Middle East might be partnering with a country in Latin America and you have these kind of proxy relationships. What I found as the research progressed was a lot of path dependence that how states are actually using hackers as proxies mimics how they've been using non-state hackers and proxies in the past. And, and what we know from conventional proxies is it's very hard to get states to tighten that control over proxies because it's often part of their, uh, their political system, the culture, and the incentive structures that exist on the ground. China was really interesting because the nature of the state in China has changed so much in the last 20 years, essentially coinciding with the, the existence of the internet, which has only been around since essentially the mid-1990s, that we were able to track how China and the Chinese government was changing its approach toward these hackers and moving from turning a blind eye to the first hackers' activities in the late 90s to increasingly tighten its control over time. And especially under President Xi Jinping, who I think has shown not only in this domain, but in many other areas, a strong desire to continue to centralize control, um, that that has extended into this domain. 
where Beijing has, over time, issued clear statements to hacktivists that they now had to stop targeting Indonesian uh, websites and that now was enough. They set up information warfare militias where there is a tie between people, IT professionals, and the state, um, which is an, it's unclear whether they set up these militias because they have militias in other domains as well, and now there was the internet, so they needed information warfare militias, or whether there was a concern that Beijing knew these, in this case, thousands of hacktivists who in the late 90s were doing web defacements and taking down websites of, of um, when there was a spat between uh, China and other countries, whether there was a concern of Beijing that these very same hacktivists, if the government did something that they didn't like, would might turn on the government, might turn, might turn against Beijing, that that might have informed setting up these militias, it's unclear. But it's clear they've put in structures that make it much easier for Beijing to now keep a tap on these hackers that are not part of the state uh, and to make sure that they, that they are under tight control. All right, so let's, before we wrap up, let's turn to zoom out and turn to the so what question. Um, you know, okay, so states do these offensive cyber operations and they sometimes do them through proxy actors. And when they use proxy actors, they sometimes use different gradations of different models of proxy actors, and those are fluid both between states and, as in the case of China, within a state over time. So what? Why, why does it matter? So ultimately, looking at this from the lens of international affairs and, and the, the point about stability and conflict escalation, I think we have, an or, we have an interest in making sure that there is tight control so we know if a proxy does something it's actually what the government intended. Because if not, the proxy, if it only occasionally engages with the government and occasionally receives instructions, might go off to target uh, a, a company or a government without the, the, the masters actually knowing. And then the victim decides to respond, and you get into an escalatory spiral where then once you respond, and the masters actually didn't know that their proxies did this, then feel compelled to further escalate. So again, a lot of times we talk about cybersecurity and cyber conflict as is it's this like standalone domain that exists in a vacuum. But hackers are a part of statecraft. They're part of the broader political game. And especially, especially with tensions rising in, in, in recent years rather than the world coming together as a village, um, and the, and the likelihood of actual outright conflict and war being higher now than I think it's been in, in at least two decades, uh, there, is an, there is an interest to make sure that the escalatory dynamic is clearly controlled by governments. And that's why it matters how close the connection is between a state and their proxies uh, because of this risk of, of accidents. You treat this question at the beginning of the book, but I, I'm going to treat it at the end of the conversation. Um, you know, proxies are not a new phenomenon. Uh, and states have used proxies for reasons of deniability, for reasons of uh, being, them being able to act in places that the states can't get to uh, for a long, long time, right? And um, they are part of the function of them, 
is to create questions of plausible deniability and attribution. Um, why should we expect this area to be any different? I mean, I, I would think that as long as it's in Vladimir Putin's interest to have proxies that he can deny responsibility for their behavior, he will do that uh, because it's rational and it makes sense for him to do that. So why should we expect that the trend that you want to see toward ever tightening everybody behaving like the US and now China, right? Um, the Chinese being the good guys here, um, you know, having good control over their proxies. And by the way, that's a really, like, that's had some really healthy consequences. Uh, one of them is the Xi-Obama agreement to, you know, stop, uh, to, to not hack each other's companies for commercial trade advantage uh, that China seems to have, you know, she actually seems to have uh, implemented in a fashion that has caused a meaningful decline in that sort of operation by China. So, you know, I, I totally buy your point that when you can tie the activities of the, of the proxy very directly to the government and you can hold government accountable for the things that it's happening, this has all kinds of good effects. I don't see why uh, it is in Bashar Assad's interest to acknowledge, uh, to have tight control over the Syrian electronic army. It certainly isn't in Vladimir Putin's interests to have such tight control over all the cybercrime going on in Russia that he's held personally accountable for it. Uh, so why is it a plausible ambition? So I think, I think it's important to remember one, one of the findings of the book is this path dependence and that we're seeing Russia and some of the governments uh, building on the models they used in the past. When I started this, the book, that wasn't clear. Th there, were there were some indications that because hacking is cheap, that you saw uh, that it might have been reasonable to assume that uh, the Kremlin is not only relying on hackers in Russia, but might be, might be hiring people elsewhere, or that uh, Iran might be using other hackers, right? So, on the one side, the good news is, the bad news is, these proxies are the same as old proxies. Uh, the bad news is, they're the same as old proxies, <laughs> uh, because we haven't made much progress on that front uh, in the last few decades. Um, so it's important to put that into context that when I started writing this book, we were still in the early days of, I think, cyber conflict. This was back in 2013 when the discussion was just starting, and we didn't have a lot of empirical data to really, lots of rumors flying around about the relationship between the Kremlin and criminal actors. The indictments have shed a lot more light on this. And then separate from that, it's important, I think, also to remember, again, five to seven years ago, we were talking about half a dozen states developing offensive cyber capabilities, right? We were talking about China, Russia, US, and then Iran and North Korea followed suit. James Clapper testified 18 months ago that there are now over 30 countries developing offensive cyber capabilities. Every single country is having trouble recruiting enough people to join the military and intelligence agencies as they're setting up their own cyber commands and they're trying to project offensive cyber operations, which means the demand for these hackers that are not part of the state is going to increase. And I think trying to map where some of these uh, hubs are already is important because we might not know how these will evolve in the future. And third, it leads me to the important, I think the important difference to conventional proxies 
is that geography doesn't really matter. Like you can have, the, you can have these hackers operate from a third country. You can have them operate from the country where the masters are actually in the capital. And I'm, I'm, I'm one of the questions I have is, we know attribution has been getting a lot better. It's harder, at least for the U.S. government and and some Western capitals, to figure out who's actually behind a cyber attack. If that happens, the the actors who've tried to use them for plausible deniability uh, reasons might either increase their technical sophistication to still hide their tracks, or they might be using different models for their proxy relationships, where they might start placing teams in third countries. The fact that you had 70 Chinese nationals who were found in Nairobi, Kenya, conducting cybercrime and then being extradited to China, why were they in Kenya? The fact that you have reports about North Koreans operating potentially out of India, it's less a function of them wanting to go to India, but that North Korea has not very good internet and needs access to better internet connections, and therefore that's partly the reason why people believe North Koreans are operating out of other countries. That might be a trend that I hope won't happen because it makes even how we address this even more complex, but could be a response to an enhanced attribution capability uh, that, that a lot of states are investing in now. Let's close it there. The book is Cyber Mercenaries, the State Hackers and Power. Tim Moore, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.